First, uh, uh, about Iran, uh, this surge of new cases, there's a, apparently there is a very high mortality rate if we compare to the number of cases and the number of deaths. So if you could elaborate on that. And second question is about Switzerland. Do you recommend any specific measures as far as the exposure to Italy is concerned? Thank you. With regard to Iran, again, uh, a, a little like it was originally the case in China, we need to be very careful in, in the first wave of infections in any newly affected country because we may only be detecting uh, severe cases and the deaths will be overrepresented in that. Uh, we also need to be cognizant that the virus may have been there for longer uh, than, uh, than we had uh, previously uh, suspected. We do know, again, and each and every country is a different dynamic. You saw in, in Japan with the, with the sea princess, you, you see with the Singapore when they had a cluster at a conference where there was exportation from that uh, conference. You've seen in the case of Iran religious gatherings. So sometimes when you see an acceleration of cases and a spread from that, it doesn't necessarily represent the natural transmission dynamics of the virus. It's very much driven by the context the context of a gathering and then people moving after. So the, the natural transmission dynamics are such that if you look at most cases, for example, even in China, are in family clusters. Most secondary cases occur in families. About uh, one in ten uh, contacts 
become subsequently confirmed as cases, and that's been driving the epidemic. There are very then particular circumstances. So again, we need to understand the exact dynamics of what has happened in Iran. But clearly there have been gatherings for religious festivals, and then people coming, and then moving afterwards. Uh, so I think it's going to take another few days. We have a team arriving in uh, Iran tomorrow, um, and our regional director will actually be there tomorrow as well, and, and a team arriving in Italy. Uh, as we speak, and uh, we're reaching out to all affected countries to ensure that they have the necessary technical assistance to understand the, the, the specific context and the transmission dynamics they're observing. But again, I caution everybody, please don't extrapolate from one individual country experience. Each situation is different. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, I, I think there are, uh, uh, again, uh, the, the European Union and Switzerland and other European countries have been working closely together to maintain their, their open borders and to manage this risk collectively. Again, I think I've said it in numerous press conferences, there is no zero risk in this. This is about good risk management. It's about good communication between states. It's about management and early detection of cases and their appropriate isolation and treatment. Uh, it's not about shutting borders. It's about uh, coherent, coordinated public health action by a number of member states who share borders in order to effectively manage the public health consequences of, of any importation of uh, COVID-19. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, let's try one more time to call a few journalists online and then we will get back to the room. So, uh, Jacqueline from CNN. Jacqueline, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Thanks for taking my call. This is Jacqueline Howard from CNN. My question is just to follow up on uh, the comments Dr. Tedros made about the uh, pandemic. Thank you for clarifying questions around the word pandemic. My follow-up to that is, at what point, as we monitor this outbreak, at what point could we call this a pandemic? And for any outbreak, what criteria does it have to reach to be determined a pandemic? Sylvie may wish to, to, to come in on this. <clears throat> uh, pandemic comes, I think, from the Greek pandemos, which means everybody. Demos being the population, pan meaning everyone. So pandemos is a concept where there's a belief that the whole world's population would likely be exposed to disinfection uh, uh, and a potentially a proportion of them fall sick and we've seen it in influenza. It occurs in different ways. So pandemics of influenza can be sometimes called a lot earlier because we know we've had previous pandemics and we know with influenza that when there's highly efficient community trans transmission as we see with seasonal flu that the disease does spread around the world and it has proven that time and time again so it's much easier to say a pandemic will occur in an influenza situation what we don't understand yet in 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 in, uh, in covid 19 are the absolute transmission dynamics and look what's happened in china we've seen a significant drop in cases huge pressure placed on the virus and a, and a, and a sequential decrease in the number of cases that goes against the logic of pandemic, yet we see, in contrast to that, an acceleration of cases in places like Korea, or in, uh, and, and therefore we're still in the, in the balance. Uh, it's very important that, and the, D, the Director General has said this uh, time and time again, now is the time to prepare. So we're in a phase of preparedness for a potential pandemic. That doesn't stop anyone doing what they need to do. We've had enough countries now import disease. It is time 
to prepare. It is time to do everything you would do in preparing for a pandemic. But in declaring something a pandemic, it is too early. We're still trying to avoid that reality. We're still trying to avoid that uh, eventuality. And countries are, are having success in doing that. So uh, let's focus on what we can do and what we need to do, which is prepare. When we mean prepare, we mean prepare to detect cases, prepare to treat cases, prepare to follow contacts, prepare to put in place adequate containment measures. It, it's, it's not... Uh, it's not a hundred different measures. There are probably five or six key interventions and the Director General outlined them in his speech and Sylvie may wish to, to comment on this as well. Yeah, thanks a lot. And um, I think whatever is um, the situation, as Mike highlighted, what is really important to understand is that the situation will be different in different contexts. And so that's why local and national risk assessment is so important, because this is how you can really tailor the intervention to the context. And uh, even in one given country, the situation may be different in different provinces, for instance. And so that's why it's so important now to get prepared and to, tr to uh, grab these nuances and so that we can uh, put in place effective uh, interventions. And uh, one of the comments also is that each disease has a different uh, uh, trigger. Uh, and what uh, we know for flu, because flu uh, has uh, uh, been uh, hitting the humanity with different pandemic, uh, three in the past century, and one is in, in this century. So we have more experience of this kind of disease, and it's easier to define triggers for uh, when we are in uh, uh, pre-alert and when we are really in a full pandemic mode. But for this disease, it's a very new disease and we are still learning about it. So we, uh, we do is a very careful monitoring 24-7 uh, and working closely together to be uh, on top of it at any moment. Thank you very much. We'll take uh, one more question from online. Uh, Banjo Kawuk from India, down third. Uh, Miss Banjo, can you hear us? Uh, hi, my question is to Dr. Tedros. Uh, Dr. Tedros, you were uh, meeting the officials of African CDC the other day and you were taking a talk of preparedness. Uh, can we have some sense as to how many laboratories in different countries of Africa are prepared to do to, to, to testing of the samples and how many countries do have such, such a facility? Yeah, thank you. Uh, if you could, if you just give a sense about uh, how much are these countries prepared to launch a quarantine required at any point in how much are they prepared? What? The second one. Second one. Uh, uh, okay. So I will I will take the first one. Uh, as you know, at the start of this outbreak, there was only one country that could do the um, testing. Now we have 41 countries, and we're moving into the rest of the countries uh, that haven't uh, developed the capability. But the meeting of the African Union Ministers of Health was very, very important because it helps in continental preparedness and also national level preparedness. And they had a consensus on, on, on both and they um, have agreed to do all uh, they can because it's the national preparedness which is uh, really central uh, to fight if, you know, for the potential arrival 
of this virus in uh, uh, the continent. Yeah. With regard to uh, preparedness to implement public health measures like uh, case detection, isolation, quarantine, in fact, uh, paradoxically, countries in Africa have quite a deal of experience in dealing with uh, detection of specific syndromes. Africa has been leading the world in polio surveillance, uh, in surveillance for hemorrhagic fevers, which is a hemorrhagic uh, syndrome, uh, with cholera, which is a watery diarrhea syndrome, for Lassa fever and for yellow fever. So countries in Africa have been dealing with the identification, uh, isolation and contact tracing for many different diseases. The challenge in this particular case is that this is a respiratory disease uh, and the, the systems in Africa historically have not been as well developed for that. But WHO, with its partners in the Global Influenza Surveillance Network, has been doing quite a bit of work over the last five years, since the, in fact, since the last pandemic, in strengthening the capacity of African public health systems to detect uh, and implement respiratory disease surveillance, particularly uh, acute uh, lower respiratory tract infection surveillance. So uh, we believe that uh, the surveillance systems are in place, but what we need to do is connect clinicians in the hospitals with the surveillance systems, with the laboratories. So those basic capacities exist, but it's the same for all countries, even Italy and everywhere else. The issue in a crisis is not having the individual capacities. It's making those capacities work together in a coherent and coordinated fashion. We've seen that with polio eradication. It's not just about the individual capacities. Coordination, governance, and the ability to drive a coherent response over a long period of time. And we've seen that in Ebola. It's taken a year and a half in Congo to develop and implement a comprehensive, multi-agency, multi-organization capacity to contain Ebola in Congo and prevent it reaching surrounding countries. So I think uh, Africa has quite a track record. We need to support those systems and there are countries in other parts of the world who also uh, have weaker health systems and we also need to support them. Very much. We'll take a few more questions from the room and then we will have to go. Yes, please. First question and then Katrin, Katrin and then we will probably have to move on. When is this funding expected to be received by the WHO? Here to stay, and it might become a long-term disease that coexists with humans, like the flu. How to comment on this? Thank you. That's a possibility. What we don't know is what the reality will be in two months or in six months' time. There, uh, there is still uh, a possibility that we can contain the virus and interrupt its, trans interrupt its transmission. Uh, but uh, the virus may settle down into an endemic pattern of transmission, into a seasonal pattern of transmission, or could accelerate into a, a full-blown global uh, pandemic. And at this point, uh, it is not possible to say which of those realities uh, is, going to, is going to happen. In fact, the hope we have from the, from the efforts in China is that it is clear that China and a number of other countries with smaller events have managed to suppress and contain the virus. But as I said, some countries are struggling with that. Uh, so we have to now see, uh, can we learn the lessons? And I think that's going to be one of the important things coming from the mission to China, uh, is collating and bringing together all of that experience that China's had over the last uh, eight weeks. Uh, to see what we can learn about what the right things to do, what works, what doesn't work, what's effective, what's not effective. Uh, but you're, you're correct. 
if anyone uh, wants to predict the future, uh, they're welcome to do it. But uh, your, the possibility you raise is certainly one that uh, could come to pass. Thank you. The coronavirus emergency. Financial markets around the world rocked overnight amid new concerns about the spread of the virus. Now more than 79,000 cases confirmed worldwide. More than 2,600 people have died. Cases skyrocketing in South Korea. More than 830 confirmed there. And in Iran, at least 12 people have died, while Italy is in the worst outbreak outside of Asia. 219 people have been affected there, infected there, and five people have died. James Longman is there starting us off this morning. Good morning, James. Yeah, good morning, Michael. This is the front line of the fight against coronavirus in Italy, if you like. Down this road here, these are the 12 towns which are on lockdown. We've been told, actually, if we go over this line, we'll end up uh, in quarantine ourselves. We've been watching as the police have been checking cars, making sure that no one's coming from those towns. More than 150 cases, as you say, five people dead now in Italy, and the hunt is on for patient zero. This morning, Europe on edge, as Italy sees the number of people infected with the novel coronavirus soar to more than 150 cases, the most outside of Asia. About a dozen northern Italian towns are now in lockdown. Normally bustling medieval villages turned into virtual ghost towns, as experts scramble to identify the source of the outbreak, which has so far killed five. We spoke to Rosella on lockdown with her family. There are a lot of elderly people. Uh, mostly, and there are babies. I've got a three-week-old cousin, so we're scared for them. We have to wear masks or maybe a scarf or something. You have to have your mouth covered. Elsewhere, officials in Venice cancelling the rest of the city's famed carnival festival. Officials in Milan, Italy's fashion and financial capital, taking extreme precautions. People are stocking up on food, and people are scared to use public transportation. This fashion show by Giorgio Armani deserted. It had to be streamed instead. Models walking the runway in a room full of empty chairs. And as officials and health experts fight to contain the virus in Europe, it continues its spread around the world. In Iran, at least 12 have died due to the COVID-19 virus this month. So far, confirmed cases in up to five cities, including the capital, Tehran. In South Korea, the number's now surging. More than 160 new cases overnight, bringing the total of infected to more than 760. The president putting the country on red alert, the highest level for infectious diseases. About half the cases have been linked to a local church in Daegu, South Korea's fourth largest city. Schools are closed and people have been warned to avoid large gatherings. The government's kind of advised people to stay inside to wear masks. In the US, emotions running high at this council meeting in Anniston, Alabama. Locals fighting back over plans to quarantine infected passengers from the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Japan at a nearby FEMA facility, announcing Sunday it was backing down. It spreads from here, it's going to spread everywhere else. Meanwhile, a judge in California issuing a temporary restraining order to halt the use of a facility in Costa Mesa to quarantine infected patients. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's putting more people at risk. Now, global markets are down and the Dow is poised to open down as well. The lockdown that we've seen here in these towns could be uh, a kind of prototype for how we see this virus being tackled both in Europe and in the United States. George. Hi, everyone. George Stephanopoulos here. Thanks for checking out the ABC News YouTube channel. If you'd like to get more videos, show highlights. Disease detectives. When you see something that's gone wrong in a community... Who do you send out there to investigate it? You need good disease detectives. 
you also need to have strong systems for being able to respond. So then once you've identified a problem, how do you have a response just like we are operating here? So we work with them on setting up those systems that then can help whether it is Ebola, whether it's SARS, whether it's something new like we're seeing today.
um, very specific questions about what we've done in this response, as well as you know the other things that we do in this community other than just this response. So we're going to still take questions for all of us until 325. We're going to break up into different groups where you will have the opportunity to ask each of us individual questions. And also, you know, maybe there's some possibilities of us doing some additional stories.